Glad to be with you all today. Let's go before our Lord. Let's pray. Um, Let's ask for his help and we'll get right into it. Let's pray. Um, Father, you know more than all of us that we live in a world that is uh, confusing. We live in a world where uh, you constantly call us to submit to people that we wouldn't like to, Father. Um, And so, Lord, I pray that in the midst of all that, that rather than revolt or rise up, rather than that causing us anxiety and pain in our heart, that we would look to you and we would be reminded Uh, Father, that we can trust you and do what you've called us to do because you have everything under control. Convince us of that truth from your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, There's a saying that goes, don't judge a book by its cover. We've all heard that, and even if you're not a reader, you know what that means, right? It means that there are certain things that if you look at them, their first appearances are aren't what they seem, and you'll rob yourself of joy if you instinctively relate to things based on what it looks like at first. So don't judge a book by its cover. There are certain times where it's helpful for us to judge things by what they seem, that things are what they seem as soon as we look at them. Uh, This past week, there was a story of of this guy that was blind riding the, the, the train while waiting on a a train, he walked off of the MARTA stand and he fell onto the tracks. And um, so guys that were out there, they didn't say, I shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Maybe he's there on his own. But they jumped in, right? That there's certain times where you do want to judge things. If a car is speeding towards you, you don't want to sit back and think, well, what should I do? You want to move out of the way. Certain things are what they seem. Brussels sprouts are as dangerous and unappealing as they smell. There's certain things you just don't want to judge. You do want to judge a book by its cover. But then there are other things uh, that we may feel just as strongly and passionate about, that we don't want any part of, and we think that our instincts are right, but they're not. And I think what Ecclesiastes does is it helps us see that life uh, is not what it seems. And so the one thing that we are going to talk about today is authority and government. How do we relate to authority and government? Y'all said, "Mm, uh uh-huh, you already know where this is going. 2 Samuel 23, verse uh, 3, it'll be right here on the screen. It says this. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes uh, grass to sprout from the earth. What he says is that when you have a godly leader, authority is a really, really good thing, and it causes people to rejoice and to thank God for it. However, you and I know that we live in a fallen world, which means all of God's good gifts to us are tainted by the people that uh, seek to exhibit those gifts. And authority is no different. We constantly find ourselves in a place where as we hear about authority and people that are in charge, as we hear about government, we're filled with this angst 
And what I've found and what I've seen is that you just have all of these Christians, people that put their trust in in the Lord, walking around with long faces because we can't get away from the bad things that we hear. Think about how many times per day, maybe you were in the car on the way to work, maybe you were on your way home and you were off Twitter for 45 minutes and then you run into somebody and they said, hey, did you hear about dot, dot, dot? Did you hear about the acquittal that took place? Did you hear about the bombs that were dropped? Did you hear about the warfare? Did you hear about, and it constantly bombards us and we constantly have these, these long faces that are indicative of heavy hearts. And I think the danger is because we feel so strongly about it, we can begin to judge our response to the authority that God has set up by its cover, by how it looks at the outside, by how it makes us feel. And we rush into responding against the wickedness that we see in this world in a way that's premature and shows that we don't really fear God, we fear this world. Or we can look at the fact that it seems like a God who has all the power and is waiting is not going to do anything. So we get frustrated with him and try to take matters into our own hands. And we constantly find ourselves waiting and hoping that the situation will change and we're convinced that our spirits won't be lifted until the situations that we're in change. So the question that I want to go through the text as we look at Ecclesiastes 8 is this. How do we lift our spirits when we're surrounded by so much frustration and we can't make sense of all of what goes here? So turn with me, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And I just want to give you all a little bit of context. Solomon, or the guy that wants us to think of him as he writes this book, is encouraging people to hold off on their reaction and to really look at life, to not judge life by its cover, by what we see. He's speaking to a context of people that live in what we know now as a monarchy. There is no Senate. There is no Supreme Court. There is no way to appeal your cause. People are at the mercy of a king. People that are frustrated with where they are and seem powerless to change things. And what he's going to tell us is, don't come to a premature conclusion about how you're to act. Don't judge a book by its cover and jump right in and act based on instinct, but use wisdom. And I think that the point of what he's going to say in all of this is this, wisdom has the power to lift our spirits without touching our surroundings. Wisdom has the power to lift our spirits without changing anything that goes on in the outside world. So if we want our spirits to be lifted, then we need to go to God's word and hear what God has to say. Read with me um, in verse one. This chapter has these bookends. So the start and the end talks about wisdom. And all that a bookend is, is it's like a picture frame that tells you 
All right, look here. We, we want to draw your uh, attention here. Verse 1 says this. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom, listen, makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. He's saying, look, look, look. Wisdom, what it does is it can take somebody with a long face, it can take somebody with a furrowed brow, and it has the ability to make their face shine. But look here at the end, verse, verse 16. This is the book end. He says this, When I applied my hearts to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. And so he says, I'm staying up all day and all night trying to find out why things are the, the way that they are. I'm trying to get answers. And he says this, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. What he's saying is, here's what life is like. Wisdom is like a GPS meant to lead you towards contentment, not to give you control. Siri will tell you how to go around the detours, but ask Siri, hey, Siri, why is there a detour here? And she says, John, I don't have any answers for that. What God's saying is wisdom will lead us towards contentment. It has the power to make our face shine, but it doesn't give us control. It doesn't tell us why things are the way that they are. So wisdom will give benefits to everybody who accepts the limits that are placed on it. It'll help us through life, but it has limits. And so as we think about this concept of how we rate to relate to authority and those that are in charge, he goes in and he leads us right into it in verse 2. And I want you to see this here. If as we read this text and you think about the frustration that you have with submission to authority and the rulers that are in place right now, if nothing changes for you but the anxiety that you have, that's a win. That's what wisdom is here for. Starting in verse 2, he's going to give us three things. So three things that we want to uh, uh, look at. The very first one is this. Follow the rules, but don't fear the rulers. Follow the rules, but don't fear the rulers. It's funny because in our day and age right now, especially with Twitter and Facebook and everybody that has a platform, you hear certain Christians talk about the Bible and God's role for justice and what it is that he wants us to do. And you would think that, man, all of this is good stuff and the preponderance of stuff that comes out makes it seem as if that's all that God says. But there's very clear things that God does say. People tend to ignore the parts where Paul says, hey, government, it's put here by God. They ignore the part where Peter tells an oppressive people to submit to those that are in place. They ignore Acts 23 verses 1 through 5, where Paul is wrongly jailed on trial 
asks a question to the high priest who he doesn't know is the high priest at the time. And the high priest says to some goon that he has, hit him in the mouth. They punch Paul in the mouth and Paul lashes out at him, calls him this whitewashed wall. It really doesn't mean much to us, but Paul, Paul, Paul starts to lash out at this dude and they say to him, how dare you talk to the high priest that way? And do you know what Paul says? I ain't know that he, he was a high priest. I didn't know. If I would have known, though he hit me in the mouth, I wouldn't have lashed back out or disrespected him in that way. That's what the Bible says about how we should submit to a, a, a Those are some of the things. That's not the whole story, but those are some of the things that I feel like is largely ignored. So what he helps us see here in verse 2 is this. The instruction is follow the rules, but don't fear the rulers. The powers that are in place, they are worthy of our respect. They are not worthy of our worship. Look here at verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. So the very first thing that it does here is it roots earthly authority, the foundation for it is not in the trustworthiness of the person in office, but the foundation of it is the fact that God has an agreement of sorts. God put him there. The foundation of the respect that we give to earthly authority is not rooted in how well they perform. It's it's rooted in the God that placed them there for the reasons that he has. We may not know why, but he has. He has an agenda. Verse 3. So, look, for all of us that would, would, would be frustrated and quick to respond or to revolt and to lash out, it says this. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Let me explain a few things here. The very first thing is he wants us to see the authority that is in place is a very real authority because it has been provided by God. So the first motivation is we submit to the authority that's in place. We do our best to be good citizens and to keep the laws, not because we particularly agree with everything, but out of the respect that we have for God. That's verse two. Verse three through five is we do it out of just the basic thing that's in our hearts for self-preservation. Read here with me in uh, verse five. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil Thing when, when the Bible talks about the authority that's, that's in place, it says, yo, God had put him here on the earth to wield the sword or to restrain lawlessness. Now, here's what that means and here's what that does not mean. In a perfect world, justice would come out perfectly. In an imperfect world, justice is often distorted. 
And we know that there are folks that submit and do everything right and put their hands up and put their hands on the steering wheel and say, yes, sir, and no, sir, and they still get the short end of the stick. Ecclesiastes has been clear about that. But what he's saying right here is this. Obedience is prescribed to here because wisdom doesn't disregard what's helpful in the world because evil persists in the world. So it's saying earthly authority is distorted, absolutely. But you don't hurt your chances for survivals by ascribing to the rules that are in place. There are certain times where there are just unjust laws in place, and we see it in Acts where the apostles are told not to share their faith, and they at this point have to say, hey, you're stepping out of the bounds of the authority that God had placed you, so I have to submit to God and not him, but by and large, the authorities that are in place, they, they keep the laws. They do what's right. We pay our taxes. We drive the speed limit. If you can't say amen, say ouch. I'm right there with you. We honor those that are in place. One of the ways that we can practically respect the authorities that are in place, the leaders that we dislike, is this. I think this is why the Bible tells us to pray for our leaders and pray for our enemies. Because there's something about when you pray for somebody, um, you're not often praying for the judgment of God to come down on them. You're praying that God would turn them. You're praying that God would have the same compassion on their hearts that he's had on your hearts. The question is this, how often do you pray for the government? How often do you pray for the leaders that are in place? Is it just here once per week when we take time and pray that? Or do you use the three times per day that you sit down for meals where you're already praying and just tell the folks at the table this prayer is going to be a little longer than God is great, God is good, because God actually hears what we say and so I'm going to pray for this. Do you spend more time crafting provocative tweets than you do crafting actual prayers. If you do, yeah, say ouch if you can't say amen. If you do, the delete button is your friend. The drafts folder is your friend. Put it in drafts, and instead of broadcasting it out to people where you may get smiles, do like the Psalms and address those things to God, to a very God whose words don't just get smiles, but whose words create stars. One of the ways that we can respect is to take time and to actually pray, to remind other people of this same truth. You have friends. Keep a pulse on those that are your close friends. And if you've actually built up enough relational capital to be able to speak in their lives, this is the time to spend that. Sometimes we just need to be reminded from people, hey, I know that we're frustrated. I know that we want to panic, 
But look, God is in control. And one thing that he's told us to, to do out of respect for him and for our good is to respect those that he's put in place. And we should be calculated in the way that we respond. Verse 3 says this, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. And that's just saying, hey, as we have objections, sometimes it's easy for us to judge a book by its cover and to rush in and try to do things. And when we do things, we don't take into account who it is that we side with. I have a very, very good friend who lives in town who's involved in politics. And what he says is this, John, what most folks don't know is this, rage is easily manipulated. He's like, I've seen folks come into a room and convince folks that this side is wrong and all the stuff that they're trying to do just to create a mob so that they're not even concerned with their good. They just don't want that guy to win. And as they do that, they lead themselves into a scenario that's no good for them at all. Proverbs 29.20 says, uh, it's up here on the screen. I, I do know it. That's why I put it in here. But can we go to it on the screen? I don't want to turn to it in my mind. Do you see a man who is, I'm just being honest, we're family. I've got a lot of other ones that I'm going to turn to and my time's going down. Do you see a man who is hasty in his speech or hasty in his tweets? There is more hope for a fool than him. He's easily manipulated, and the Bible tells us this. Listen, follow the rules. There is real authority provided by God for an agenda that he's trying to weave. So while these earthly leaders deserve our respect, they don't deserve our worship. And here's what I mean. Although the authority is real, it's regulated. There are limits. God gives it out, and one thing God is not in the business of doing is making somebody equal with him. So what this means is that although they have an authority, it's a regulated one. Look, look here in verse 7, right? It looks powerful. It looks like these rulers can decide our destiny. But verse 7 says this, for he who does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it'll be? They don't know the future. Verse 8, no man has the power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. They don't know where they're going to die. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. What he's saying in all of this is, it looks powerful, but if you really look past the cover, it's actually pretty pitiful. They, they don't have the power to dictate their own destiny, much less yours. They don't know when they're going to die. Really, what it's trying to say is that they have power. It's real, but God has limited their power. It's constrained. There are boundaries. Proverbs 21.1 says this, that the kings of the earth, their hearts are like streams of 
water in God's hands. He directs it where it would go. We're not used to that, so that really doesn't make sense to us. If Solomon lived right now, here's what he, he would say. The kings of the earth are like the little kids in the mall whose parents keep them on a leash. They can go, but if Jimmy goes too far, then he's going to get whiplash once he gets snatched back. That what God's saying is, no, no, listen, they're not worthy of your worship because at the end of the day, God has them on a leash and it is a short leash and they'll do, they'll do the things that God will allow to advance the agenda that he's laid out and nothing more. Verse 9, he says, it's all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. Right here, when man had power over man to his hurt. What does that mean, man had power over man to his hurt? The last time we see that is in Ecclesiastes 5 when he talks about a guy that had money and said that he hoarded money to his own hurt. I think that it's the same thing here, that what's being said at the end is that the oppressor, if they yield authority in a way that God has not designed, that at the end of the day, it's just going to be to their own hurt. The examples, I think the, the one that would instantly come to folks' mind is Pharaoh, enslaving God's people, not wanting to let them go. And when he says that he is going to let them go and, and they leave, he pursues them until they get to the end of the Red Sea. It splits, they go through, and he's chasing after a group of folks trying to oppress him, not knowing that his pursuit of oppression is actually the path that leads him to his watery casket. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the people that told on them because they didn't bow down when a king tried to step outside of his bounds. They were the ones that got burned in the fire. Daniel, the people that accused him and threw him to the lions, God preserved him. And they got eaten by the lions. And on and on and on. So what he's saying is this, yeah, the authorities in our place, they are worthy of our respect, but not our worship. God's the one that determines our destiny. And here's what that does. It settles us. Regardless of who is in power, none of us are frantic and none of us are fanatics. We are not infatuated, nor are we intimidated by what takes place. We are settled. Though the whole world around us crumbles, we are reminded that God is in control. As we look not to what goes on around us, but as we look to him, right, I had the worst travel week of my life this, this week, flew through a bunch of storms, and early on what I learned is that, yeah, don't pay attention to people around you that are freaking out on the plane. Look at the stewardess, the flight attendant. If she's good, then you're good. If she's not, then you're not. Listen, listen, as we look to God, God's never panicking, regardless of who is in office, then why should we? So what wisdom does, 
is it lifts our spirits without changing our surroundings at all. It reminds us that we are to follow the rules, but we don't need to fear the rulers. Uh, But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. Verse 10 says this, then I saw the wicked buried. That's so good. He's frustrated, right, that wickedness seems to prevail. And he says, look, as we look, the world and the rulers and authorities look powerful, but at the end, they're really pitiful. And one day, they're going to die. That they can't outrun their fate any more than a dog can outrun its tail. And what he says is this, the wicked are buried. However, he says this, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. He's frustrated because he's like, all right, they're buried, they're dead. But even though they lived a wicked life and they're dead, people still praise them. They're still seen with this high regard. People gloss over the ways that they abuse the authority that God gave them. And they get parades and holidays and all this stuff. So he's frustrated. And then he says this. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Point one was follow the rules. Don't fear the rulers. Here's point two. Fear God when life is frustrating. Fear God when life is frustrating. If we look at the world and are convinced of their power, if that's what we get at first glance, and God tells us don't judge a book by its cover, the opposite is true when it comes to how God acts in this world. It looks, from our estimation, pitiful. God, if you are in control, why don't you do something? And what he's saying is when life is frustrating, Here's what you have to do. You have to fear God. I'll explain what it means, but I do want to spend time real quick on verse 11. His point here, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Listen, just because God's justice is delayed, it doesn't mean that it's denied. It doesn't mean that it's not going to come. God delays his justice in order to show us things about himself and us. He wants to show us, as far as the rest of the Bible is concerned, his kindness. How long that he can bear with us. 2 Peter 3.10, he says, Yo, God's not slow in bringing about his promise, but he's waiting because he wants people to repent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Romans 2.4 Paul says, no, 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 it's the kindness of God, the fact that he forbears, the fact that he doesn't give us what we deserve right when we deserve it, that is meant to lead us to repentance. God delays his judgment to show how kind he is. That's what we see about him. But do you know what we see about mankind? We see the depths of the 
wickedness of our heart. We see how God is patient, but we look at that and the judgment that we reign on that is that God is a pushover. God's kind, but we look and we see that as weakness. And we tend to form our conclusions about how we ought to live in this world based on the way that God acts towards people. The providence of God, how God provides for people, doesn't necessarily say anything about how he feels about the way that they live their lives. Just because God provides, it doesn't mean that he's pleased. It means that he's kind. And he causes his rain and his shine, or rain and the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. And the conclusion that he makes here is this. Look, verse 12, it's like he's trying to talk to himself. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, though the cover of this book looks awful, I'm not going to judge this book by its cover. I'm not going to decide what I do with God based on the way that it seems like he acts, but he says here, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. That word because there at the end gives us the reason why fearing God leads to things that go well, and what you'll find out is as you read this, he doesn't really give an answer. He says things will go well if for those that fear God. Why? Because they fear God. Things won't go well for those that don't fear God. Why? Because they don't feel God, fear God. So it seems kind of empty, but that's not the case. This is somebody speaking forth in hope even in the midst of frustrating times, knowing that it's the fear of the Lord that dictates his future and nothing else. And here's what I mean by that. We have to clarify what we mean by the fear of God. We hear that word and there's so many thoughts uh, that come into our mind. And uh, the best way that I can think of to describe what it means to fear God is to tell you what it doesn't mean to fear God. So I'm going to give you a picture a story, the first story in the Bible. God speaks into a world and things happen. So God shows and proves that his words are his actions that he can be trusted. God makes Adam and Eve. God tells them, enjoy all of life, but I've withheld this one tree. You don't know why, but I've withheld it. And if you eat it, you're going to die. Trust me. Fear my word. Adam and Eve are there one day and the devil comes up and they start to talk about the tree. And she says, hey, I fear God. God told me that if I eat it, I'm going to die. And do you know what he says to her? You have nothing to be afraid of. You don't have to fear God. You're not going to die. Do you know what she says? She takes the fruit, looks at it, and apart from the fear of the Lord, this fruit doesn't seem that bad. And so what she does is she eats it. 
Adam is probably on the side shaking like, man, she's going to die. And now I'm not going to have another wife. She eats it. And God's kind. His justice is delayed. And Adam's like, all right, it's all good. And he eats it and he dives in. And God's kindness and delayed justice makes people think that he's not to be feared. And so the things that he's put off limits, people run to it and assume that it's going to be fine. They've been intimate a bunch of times. And they got married at the end of the day. So it's fine for us to live together. They were disrespectful to the authorities that God put in place. And God didn't strike them down. They got a promotion on their job. It's fine. There's nothing to be afraid of. That's what it means to not fear God. To look at him and to not orient your life around his word because you're convinced that it's not as powerful as you once thought it was. My wife and I were sitting on our front porch with, with some friends yesterday um, and her husband was sitting next to, to me. And so he looks at his wife and he says, hey, there's a bee next to you, watch out. And so what she did, you know, she looks there and it's like, She's constantly trying to see, all right, where's that bee? And she's orienting her life around that bee so that she doesn't get stung. But then I jump in and I say, hey, I heard somewhere bumblebees don't sting. Y'all heard that before? Um, It's actually not completely true, but this is the point that I'm trying to make. Listen, yeah, 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 this is the point. Once I told her that, you have nothing to be afraid of. She disregarded it. It flew around, but the orientation of her body didn't change regardless of where it was because she felt like, I have nothing to be afraid of. Those that fear God are those that change the orientation of their life based on what he says. They are always aware of where he is, and it dictates how they live their life. Listen. He says, for people like that, for people that take the words of God's judgment seriously, that says the penalty for one sin is death, and that nobody, regardless of how good they are, can erase the past sins or earn God's standing. But the only way that you can be made right with God is to flee from trying to be right and to put your faith and trust in Jesus, who was God in the flesh, who died on the cross for our sins, those that fear God and live their lives based on what he says, do you know what he says here? It'll go well for them. It'll go well for them. Now, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Wisdom does this. It lifts our spirits without touching our surroundings. It doesn't necessarily mean that things in our life will change, but it does mean that even in the midst of frustrating times, even as we look out and the wicked prosper, even as we look out and the world is not what it is that we hope that it will be, we can be reminded that it'll go well for us. And here's what I mean by it'll go well. 
not circumstances, but the conclusions that we come to in the life that we have right now. Prosperity, any blessings that God give, the people that fear God, view that as a gift from God, God's great gift to to us, and we're content with it and we enjoy it. People that don't fear God or don't look at the things that they have the way that God says, they can have prosperity, but they're still anxious because they want more. Are you here and are you discontent with what you have? Do you want more? It may be because you don't look at the things that God has provided to you the way that he says that he has out of his grace. Not just temporally, but spiritually. Everything in life, even the hard things, make us more like him. And so let's just take a step back and view history. History in the U.S. History at a time where the word of God was still true and authority was being abused. So certain slaves that could read and could preach and could teach God's word came across this exact same verse. And do you know what they had to say to people that were enduring this abuse of authority? Even though the wicked even though they do bad things a hundred times and still live. Listen, it's going to go well for those of us that fear God. And here's what I mean. People will look and they will attribute Christianity that was adopted by slaves to, oh, yeah, of course, they just took on the religion of their master. But that's foolish. Things don't work that way. People that grow up with dads that are deacons and abusive turn away from Christianity for much less. Suffering makes you wise and it makes you smart. Here's what one author says. The innocent slaves who were regularly whipped and hung on trees to die found Jesus in solidarity with them. That what they did was they didn't just egg accept it all at face value. But as they read, there were certain aspects of the story that stood out to them, and they know, no, Jesus is a savior for me. Jesus is a guy that knows what it's like to be auctioned off by somebody that was close enough to earn his trust. Jesus was somebody who, though he did nothing wrong, was brutally murdered. Jesus knows what it's like to have a cousin who was murdered for nothing wrong. And as Paul says, yeah, now in this life that we live, we, we see the beauty of Christ as in a mirror dimly. The glory and the beauty of the gospel shone so bright that it could shine through apparent hypocrisy and people could embrace that truth, and fear God, and know even if things on the outside don't change, it will go well with those that fear the Lord. It changes our perspective, even if it doesn't change our situation. Jupiter Hammond, another slave, says this, now, my brethren, it seems to me that there are no people that ought to attend to the hope of happiness in another world so much as we. 
Most of us are cut off from comfort and happiness here in this world and can expect nothing from it. Now seeing this is the case, why should we not take care to be happy after death? Why should we spend our whole lives sinning against God and be miserable in this world and in the world to come? If we do this, we shall certainly be the greatest fools. We shall be slaves here and slaves forever. We cannot plead so great temptations to neglect the religion as others. Riches and honors drown the greater part of mankind who have the gospel in perdition. But that can be little or no temptation to us. This is somebody that regardless of what goes on outside, he hasn't panicked, nor is he off-put by the people that would say, Don't tell me God is in control when things are bad. No, this is exactly what he's saying. This is the only anchor that we have to hold on to. We can try as hard as we can to change things, and we should. But things may never change. And if your hope is in a circumstance changing, you'll spend your life with a long face because even if it changes, there is no utopia. That's not what this world is for. That's not what we get here. So we fear God when life is frustrating. And lastly, as we come to a close, 14, he says this, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this is also vanity. He says, all right, I don't know why, but the righteous get punished like the wicked. The wicked get treated like the righteous. He says, I hate that. And we do hate it. Until we turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and it's going to be here on the screen, and it says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten Yo, yo, he didn't panic, but continued, hear this, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers. Of your souls. Like we talked about last week, he makes this same point. Christ is the lens that helps us make sense of the inequities of life. There was one person that was righteous, that was treated and given what he didn't deserve, and that was the Lord Jesus, so that all of us could be treated like we don't deserve. That's the beauty of the gospel. And listen, on Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, as Jesus rides into a town and you have a crowd of folks saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us from these oppressive 
rulers that we have and they think that Jesus is going to do that? Jesus comes into a town. And do you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't storm the castle. He cleanses the temple. He sees people who live as if they have no fear of God. And he reminds them that this God is one who is meant to have us orient our lives around his word. And he shows them their failings and their shortcomings. And the crowd that praised him because they thought they were going to change, that he was going to change the situations, were frustrated at him and they didn't want him anymore. And they turned their back on God himself. And do you know what this great God did? It is kindness and his mercy. He didn't give them what they deserve. On the cross, the very people that put the, the spear in his side, he doesn't call down judgment, but he prays for forgiveness for people that are ignorant. And as Jesus sets us free from our sin, he sets us free. He gives us freedom. He reminds us. He puts this this story, this picture, these words into human form where we can see he feared the Lord perfectly and even though he faced death at the hands of an unjust government, he rose from the grave. It went well for him. And he reminds us that all of us who fear and trust the Lord, it'll go well for us. And so how do we live in the meantime? Look here. Here's what I love, verse verse 15 and point three. Focus on the good gifts that God provides, not the answers that he withholds. 15, and I commend the joy, for man has nothing better under the sun, listen, but to eat, drink, and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life, that God has given him under the sun. The son. And then verse 16 and on, he goes on and reminds us that we have limits. There's certain things in life that we can't control. And rather than that making us a group of people that panic, it should remind us God is in control. God has done what we couldn't do. And so do you know what we're charged with here? To focus on the good things, to enjoy the life that God has provided for us. Embracing our limits is the key to our joy because we are reminded that God has things covered. We don't panic. We pray. We leave them in God's hand, and we enjoy our lives. As I close, I want to tell a story. A few years ago, my wife and I were in town during Snowmageddon, right? How you remember that? Um, And we knew that it was coming. And we suspected that the power may go out. So what we did was we drove over and hung out with some friends. We were stuck in the house. Iced roads. Couldn't go anywhere. If the power goes off, there's nothing that we can do. We we can't change it. We know that Somebody is going to turn the lights back on at some point. We don't know when. 
So there's two things that you can do. You can be frustrated that things aren't as they should be, and you can try to leave out of your house and climb up the poles and fix the light yourself. Or you can say, let's stock the freezer with ice cream. So if the power does go out, the ice cream's going to spoil, so we got to eat it all. Listen, there's a confidence, there's a contentment that comes in things on as they should. In the world that we live right now, if just judgment is a light, the power is out. God's going to fix it one day. We trust that he is. This is not saying that we escape from what's wrong. It's saying we embrace that things are wrong and we don't know why that they're wrong. And so We labor and we do our work, but in the meantime, God has provided us enjoyment. He's provided us good friends. And so here's one thing that I think we don't say enough about Christian community. We talk so much about um, accountability and these are the folks that keep you from sin, which is all good things, but Christian community is also about friendship about people that see the world the same way that you do, about people who you can sit next to, that when you're on a plane and everybody else is freaking out, you can turn to the side, not panic, pray for the pilot, pray for the skies, and then go back and start to talk about life and enjoy the TV shows that you watch. There's something intensely spiritual about being able to be relaxed, calm, settled when it seems like the world around us is going to hell. Not settled in the sense that we neglect our primary cause of ensuring that we snatch folks from the gates of hell, but settled in the sense of let's work hard, let's seek and pursue justice, but if it doesn't come in our lifetime, let's not panic as if, Something is not as it should be. Let's pray that God would use men and women to bring about justice. Let's pray that God would use the injustices to bring people to an end of themselves so that they put their trust in him. Follow the rules, but we don't fear the leaders. They don't have control. We fear God in the midst of frustrating times, and we focus on the good things that he gives us and not what he withholds. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for the wisdom that's found in your word. I pray that you would use that to make us as a church settled. Those that give a testimony of the fact that we actually believe that you're in control while everybody else screams that the sky is falling. Father, the sky is not falling, but we eagerly await the day that the sky will crack and you'll come down and set up shop and run this earth as it should be run. And until that day, help us to trust in you to work for justice, to respect those regardless of how we feel about them that you've placed in charge of us, and to be settled and to enjoy the good gifts that you've provided. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.